Hey everyone, Lainey here. So as I gear up from my maternity leave, I mentioned that I wanted to release some episodes from The Vault, if you will, that are no longer available on the regular feed unless you go and scroll through the entire website, you'll find it. This episode I'm particularly proud of. I wanted to give it a shot on the feed again because I feel like it's a subject that I'm really passionate about. And at the time, terminologies and everything like that was still being developed and reviewed and now we're a little bit more educated I would say. So if there's anything in this episode that sticks out to you in terms of needing correction, I totally get it. I understand. I accept the feedback. But yeah, I just wanted to go through the vault, if you will, and re-release this episode because it is a subject that's really important to me. It's something that has stuck with me for a really long time. And I just think that It deserves another listen. So thank you for being patient with me, for being gracious with me. And next week, there will be another episode. Okay, enough of the business. On to the show. Explicit content is found in this episode. So listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, It was 1999 when actress Hilary Swank portrayed a young man named Brandon Tina trying to find happiness in the small town of Fall City, Nebraska. The movie was called Boys Don't Cry. It was meant to explain how his life and the life of two others were cut short due to him being different. Swank's portrayal of Brandon led to her first Academy Award. Today I will share with you the brutal hate crime that resulted in the death of Brandon Tina. Okay, on to the show. Although assigned female at birth, Brandon identified as male, and that is how he will be referred to throughout this episode. Brandon Tino was born on December 10th, 1972, to 16-year-old widow Joanne Brandon, Patrick Brandon, Brandon's father, passed away on April 7, 1972, in a car accident. Brandon later admitted in therapy that his father was drunk and drove his car off of a cliff. Joanne was said to have named him Tina Marie after his father's beloved German shepherd. Brandon, his older sister Tammy, and his mother Joanne resided in the Lincoln, Nebraska trailer park. Joanne used to tell the children, It's just us three against the world. Were the three musketeers. Joanne did her best to give her two children what she could. She would work extra hours to ensure the two had nice clothes and attended the local Catholic school. Brandon was obedient and inquisitive. His questions were often seen as combative because he questioned the religious teachings of the school. Tammy said that Brandon would rat her out to their mother whenever she went against the rules. As Brandon continued into high school, He adopted a new style. He kept his hair short, began wearing dockers, tennis shoes, and button-down shirts. He began bandaging his chest with ace bandages. It was around his 18th birthday that he adopted a new persona to match his style. He began passing himself off as Billy Brinson. Billy was born one lazy afternoon. Brandon was lying on the couch when the phone rang. He answered, but the caller said she dialed the wrong number. Brandon hung up, thinking nothing of it. The phone rang again, and this time the caller said, My friend told me a really hot guy lives here. Brandon said, 
Oh. And the caller asked, what's your name? Brandon replied, Billy Brinson. The two made arrangements to meet up on New Year's Eve. The caller on the other line was 13-year-old Heather Kofal. Heather would be just the beginning of a string of relationships Brandon would have with younger women. They met at a skating rink and Brandon drug along his best friend Sarah Gap. He passed the meeting off as a prank to Sarah to see if he could fool Heather. The prank went off without a hitch. The relationship between Brandon and Heather blossomed and the two shared a lot of firsts. For Brandon, Heather was his first kiss. For the now 14-year-old Heather, she was able to have a companion who doted on her. Heather's mother worked long hours and was rarely home. Brandon wanted to feel needed, so he began gifting Heather small tokens of love. The problem was that the money used to purchase the gifts came from Joanne's pockets, not Brandon's. Brandon would often take from his mother's checkbook to buy clothes or electronics for Heather. Heather also used her mother's credit card to buy beer or cigarettes for Brandon. It seemed like the two were trying to one-up each other with who could bestow the most gifts to prove their love. Brandon was expelled from school for stealing a classmate's leather jacket for Heather. He thought school was a big joke anyway, and he was glad to have it out of his life. He started to erase traces of when he dressed like a female destroying some of Joanne's photo albums. Heather had seen Brandon's driver's license where his birth name of Tina Brandon was listed, but pushed aside any concern she had when Brandon said it was just an Irish name. Maybe Heather did know, but she enjoyed the company and attention. This would be a common theme with the women that Brandon would date. They would intuitively know that there was something different about Brandon, but would brush off those feelings. Brandon moved in with Heather and her mother. Her mother liked Brandon and thought he was kind and thoughtful. She didn't have an issue with her age difference. Brandon would have trouble keeping a job since he rarely took them seriously. He was fired from his convenience store job for allowing Heather behind the register and making out with her. He would be arrested for theft and forgery multiple times. Joanne was growing concerned with Brandon's behavior. She enlisted the help of her daughter Tammy to begin following Brandon around. She would see Brandon and Heather kissing, but convinced herself that he was just going through a phase. Joanne called Brandon's best friend Sarah to talk some sense into Heather. Sarah, concerned for her friend, went to visit Heather and told her that Brandon was really Tina. Heather seemed to be faking that she was shocked. When Sarah failed to convince Heather to end the relationship with Brandon, she went to Heather's mom to tell her that Heather was dating a woman, not a man. Heather's mom was livid that Brandon had lied to her and asked him to leave the house immediately and to never speak to Heather again. Sarah eventually convinced Brandon to take a ride with her after he attempted suicide. He was tired of being picked on for his identity and it became too much for him to bear. What Brandon didn't know was that Sarah was working with Joanne and Tammy to admit him into the Lincoln General Hospital psychiatric ward. He was admitted and released just after three days. The psychiatrist recommended that he attend counseling sessions, which he didn't take seriously. He was to be counseled for having a sexual identity crisis. Joanne asked Brandon if he was a lesbian, but Brandon said no. He told his mom that he needed to tell her something. He confessed that when he was younger, he was raped by a male relative. Tammy confirmed that she was also raped. 
They hugged and comforted each other. Joanne had no idea about the abuse and was completely surprised by the confession. Brandon was a thief, plain and simple. You couldn't trust him with money or your checkbook. He tried to buy love at any cost and this caused tension between him and Sarah. Sarah caught Brandon stealing from her one too many times and pressed charges against him. In total, he was charged over 18 times for theft and forgery. Brandon had a slew of girlfriends who, when scorned, would reveal his assigned gender. When he was intimate with his partners, he would always be the giver. His partners were pleased to find someone who was so interested in only their pleasure. He wouldn't undress the majority of the time, saying he wasn't comfortable with his body. Whenever Brandon attempted intercourse, he always used a sex toy. In March of 1993, Brandon met 19-year-old Gina Bartu. Brandon fell head over heels quickly. Gina had her reservations about Brandon, but allowed the relationship to continue at the pace that Brandon moved, which was fast. The women who Brandon slighted were none too pleased about his relationship with Gina. They confronted her and told her that Brandon was born female. Gina asked Brandon if this was true and he said yes, but he was raised a female until age eight. After that, he underwent gender reassignment surgery. In May of 1993, Brandon proposed to Gina. She accepted, but then Brandon was arrested again for check forgery. When Gina posted the bail, it was revealed that he had not had the surgery. Brandon promised that he was going to have the surgery soon. In August, Gina ended the relationship, and it broke Brandon's heart. But not for long. He met 19-year-old Lana Tisdale, who was a thin strawberry blonde native to Falls City in December of 1993. She was impressed with Brandon's chivalry and the attention he bestowed upon her. Brandon had moved to Fall Cities to start a new life, and he thought that maybe he could start that life with Lana. He was also running from people who threatened him because he had stolen from them. He took up residence in Humboldt, Nebraska, a town that was 30 miles from Falls City. They spent their time on the couch watching TV. Lana's mother, Linda, was very impressed with Brandon's treatment of her daughter. She couldn't have asked for a better person to be with Lana. Lana and Brandon spent time with Lana's ex-boyfriend, 22-year-old John Lauder, and John's friend, 21-year-old Tom Nissen. John, Tom, and Brandon would hang out together and talk about sports and women and go drinking at the local bar. John and Tom had no reason to question Brandon's gender. John Lauder spent most of his childhood in group or foster homes after a juvenile court deemed him uncontrollable and he became a ward of the state. He had a violent temper and often lashed out when he felt offended. As a child, he was known to attack other children with any nearby weapon, such as a pencil or a hammer. As an adult, he lived with his mother after being released from jail for theft and attempted burglary. John would often make his way back to her home after his various jail stints. Tom Nissen was a follower. He wanted acceptance and would do whatever it took to get it, even from John, though they had barely known each other over a year. He self-mutilated and served time in jail for arson after setting two fires in Fall City. He had a young daughter that he was barely able to take care of and was an absent father. Lana, her older sister Leslie, and their mother Linda were often residing in low-income housing, 
where boyfriends and random people would be welcome. Leslie was the more outspoken of the two sisters and found herself in a lot of trouble. She was a teen mom who gave up her child for adoption. She eventually enlisted in the Job Corps, and that is where she met her newest boyfriend, Philip Devine. He was born premature as a result of his mother having a bad reaction to medication she took when she was pregnant. His heart, eyes, lung, and right leg that ended at the knee were all affected as a result. He and Leslie connected instantly. They began a relationship, and Leslie told him she wanted to get her daughter back. Philip offered to act as a father to her daughter. She told him that it would be great to have him in her daughter's life since the little girl was half African-American and would look like she was Philip's biological daughter. She told him that he should visit them for Christmas, and he agreed. Brandon's facade was starting to crack. He couldn't stay out of trouble. On November 27, 1993, he was issued an MIP, or a minor in possession. When he was cited, he gave the ID of his cousin Charles. His court date for the MIP was scheduled for December 15th. He told the judge, still posing as Charles, that he could hire defense counsel and thus was released on his own recognizance. As he was walking out of the courthouse, a deputy sheriff approached him and asked him to go with them upstairs so that they could talk. Instead of addressing him as Brandon, the sheriff called him Tina. Brandon had a feeling that this was related to a theft earlier in the month. He had forged the name of his friend and ex-roommate, Carrie Gross. The bank teller who Brandon cashed the check with picked him out of a photo lineup. Brandon eventually confessed to the theft and turned over the fake ID he was using. He was placed in the women's jail for eight days. Those eight days gave the locals, including John, Tom, Lana, and her family, time to figure out that Brandon was housed in a women's jail. They were confused, and when Lana went to visit Brandon, she couldn't stand the sight of him crying. She was definitely confused on what to believe. To her, Brandon was a man. None of this made sense to her. Brandon's explanation for being housed in the women's jail was because he was a hermaphrodite. Lana told her mother that she wanted to post Brandon's bail, but her mother forbade her from doing so and even banned him from the home. Linda made it clear that she found Brandon disgusting and wanted nothing to do with him. On December 23rd, Lana's father had given her a blank check to take to the hair salon. Christmas was around the corner and her father typically paid for her style and haircut. Instead of going to the hair salon to get the perm, she made the check out for $250 to bail Brandon out of jail. When she got there, she found out that she had to be 21 to post bail, so she asked Tom to sign for her. He said he would on the condition that Brandon had to show them what sex he truly was. The following day, a Christmas Eve party was being held at Tom's house. Brandon had arrived at the party ahead of Lana. When Lana arrived, she found the party to be oddly quiet. She made her way to the bathroom where she saw Brandon, Tom, and John standing by the bathtub. They asked Lana if she knew what Brandon was and if he's shown her. Lana said she didn't care what was in his pants. Furious at this response, Tom wrapped his arms around Brandon's underarms and pulled his arms up above his head in a lock. 
John pulled Brandon's pants and boxers down and revealed his assigned genitalia. John ordered Lana to look or else Tom would be holding Brandon until she did. She finally took a peek between her fingers and turned back. Tom, still holding Brandon in the lock, walked out to the living room where a dozen or so guests were drinking and talking and saw a half-naked Brandon. John said to the guests, Yep, it's a girl. And Tom replied with, Ain't got no thing hanging down there. He released Brandon from the lock and Brandon pulled his pants up and stormed out of the house. Lana walked with him to a nearby hotel where Brandon called his ex-girlfriend Lisa Lambert to come and pick him up. Lana and Brandon ran into Tom and John again, who said that Lana's mother wanted her home. Brandon asked her not to leave him, but she did. Brandon was carried out to John's car and they drove to the Hormel plant on the outskirts of town. They both took turns beating him up and raping him vaginally and anally. After the rape, Tom beat him up again. The trio drove back to Tom's house where Brandon was ordered to clean himself up and threatened him if he dared report the assault. Brandon turned the shower on and closed the bathroom door. He escaped out of the window and ran to Lana's house. Leslie, Lana's sister, seeing the beaten and bloody face of Brandon, called the police. He had a busted lip. His face was red and beginning to bruise, and on his back was the shape of a boot print. He was taken to Falls City Community Hospital, where a rape kit was completed. The results of the kit indicated that there was significant vaginal bleeding and trauma. Semen samples were collected from his vaginal and anal cavity. On December 25, 1993, just one day after his release from jail, Brandon requested that rape charges be filed against John and Tom. He was questioned by Richardson County Sheriff Charles Locks. I was able to locate the interview tape and wondered if you, the listener, should hear it. It made me sick to my stomach, to be honest. Not because of what Brandon said, but because of how Brandon was being questioned by Sheriff Locks. He questions Brandon as if he deserved what happened to him that Christmas Eve. I'm going to play the interview for you, and I'll just warn you that you might be upset at what you hear. Think for a moment that this could still be how transgendered individuals who are victims of sexual assault and rape are questioned today. Tom held your arms. Which way was he standing? Beside you, behind you, or what? How'd he hold you? And then he took and Tom, uh, John under your pants, right? He pulled your pants down how far? Past your knees. How far did he pull your underpants down? Okay. What did you have in your underpants? Nothing in your underpants? Well, you talking about earlier, I had a sock, but now he pulled pants down, I didn't. You didn't have a sock, but you run around once in a while with a sock and your pants make you look like a boy? Alright, so after he pulled your pants down, he seen you as a girl, what did he do? Did he ponder you any? He didn't ponder you any, huh? Didn't that kind of amaze you? After he pulled your pants down, he been wanting to take you to bed, and you told him no, that he was a boy and he couldn't do that? Doesn't that kind of get your attention somehow that he would have put his hands in your pants and play with you a little bit? Huh? I don't want to. I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down and you're a female, that he didn't stick his hands in you. Or your finger in you. I can't believe he didn't. How was your position in the back seat? On my back. 
He was on your back. What did he scratch back in the first half? Oh, I don't know. He tried taking your head down, and you say you never had sex before, is that correct? Right. And which one tried doing this first? Tom. And Tom couldn't get it in you? Huh? Alright. He said he couldn't get you. I couldn't get it in. Well, I know it hurt. I don't know what Tom is doing. Where is he going? First it was Tom. Is that fair? That's fair. Then Tom got out, and what did he do? Then what happened? And then when John got the vaccine, what did he do? He didn't do anything with Tom. Alright. After he got his pants down, he got spread of you, or had you spread out, and he got a spread of you then. Then what happened? Well, how did, let's back up here for a second. First of all, you didn't say anything about him getting it up. Did he have a hard on when he got back there or what? I don't know. I didn't look. He didn't look. Did he take a little time working it up or what? Did you work it up for him? No, I didn't. You didn't work it up for him? No. Then do you think he had it worked up on his own or what? I guess no, I don't know. And you've never had any sex before? No. Did they do it one time to you and then the other guy do one time and quit? Or did one guy do it, then the other guy do it, then the other guy come back and do it again, and the other guy come back and do it again? They each did it once. They each did it once. You want to file charges against these guys? Yes. You want to sign a complaint against them? Yes. Will you testify in court against them? Yes, sir. Why do you run around with girls instead of guys being you're a girl yourself? Why do you make girls think you're a guy? I don't know. You have the idea. You go around kissing other girls? What? I don't know about you. The ones, the girls that don't know about you think you're a guy. Do you kiss them? Because I'm trying to get some answers so I know exactly what's going on. Now, you want to answer that question for me or not? I don't see why I have to. Huh? I don't see why I have to. The only thing is, if it goes to court, that answer is that question is going to come up in court, and I'm going to want an answer for it before it goes to court. See what I'm saying? Because I have a sexual identity crisis. You what? I have a sexual identity crisis. You want to explain that? I don't know if I can even talk about. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ plus matters. Grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. 
They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. After Brandon's interview with Sheriff Locks, nothing happened. John and Tom were not arrested immediately. It took police three days to just bring them in for questioning. Sheriff Locks defended this by saying that Brandon was not a credible witness to his own rape and assault because he had tried to pass himself off as his cousin Charles on December 15th. Further, there was no corroboration to Brandon's statements, and despite the lengthy criminal records of John and Tom, there was not enough to arrest them. Lana's mother, Linda, had turned on Brandon. Still angry about discovering that he was passing himself off as a male, she contacted John and Tom and told them that Brandon had ratted them out. She even told them that if there was any evidence of a crime, to quickly clean it up. On December 28th, the men were brought in for questioning and denied raping and assaulting Brandon that Christmas Eve. Brandon had nowhere else to turn. If he went back home to Lincoln, he was facing serious jail time in a women's prison for violating his probation. He was already warned not to go to the police regarding the crimes of John and Tom, but he did. He was relieved when Lisa Lambert offered him a place to stay. Leslie and Philip had gotten into an argument and she kicked him out. Lisa offered Philip a place to stay as well. He only needed a place to crash until his mom sent him money for a bus ticket. Brandon would go back and forth between Humboldt and Falls City to see Lana. He avoided John and Tom at all costs. He had no idea what type of rage was brewing inside of them. John and Tom did not want to return to prison and felt they had to kill Brandon in order to avoid it. They began plotting on ways to kill him. They suggested to each other that they remove his hands and head so that he could not be identified later. They discussed the tools needed to carry out the murder, a hatchet, rope, and clean clothes. They found an address book that belonged to Brandon and began staking out houses in Lincoln, Nebraska, waiting to make their move. The next couple of days proved futile and they returned to Fall City, dejected. John always prided himself on his loyal nature. He was loyal to Lana and would do anything for her. He wanted to defend her from anything that brought her harm. He convinced himself that Brandon was a deviant who preyed on her naivete. He wouldn't stand for it. So on December 31st, 1993, after drinking for five days straight, John and Tom decided to find Brandon and make him pay for hurting Lana. They hopped in John's car and picked up the items they would need to carry out their plan. John took a long knife that belonged to his father, along with gloves. They drove to a friend's house and stole a semi-automatic handgun. Their third stop was Linda's house. 
She informed them that Brandon and Philip had been staying at Lisa Lambert's house out in Humboldt. She essentially signed their death warrant. Tom Nissen testified in court to the following events. John Robert proceeded to kick the door three times. I noticed at the on the floor at the foot of the bed there was a blanket covering that looked like a person. I reached down and moved the blanket and Tina Brandon was on the floor. You had some impression that she wasn't yet dead? Yes. She was twitching. Can you tell me what you did to ensure that she's dead? I stabbed her. Their bodies were discovered by Lisa Lambert's mother the following day. She contacted the police and informed them that three people were dead, her daughter Lisa, Lisa's friend Brandon, and Philip Devine. Lisa's mother also discovered Lisa's son Tanner, unharmed, in another room of the house. What we know about the injuries to Lisa Lambert was that she was shot three times, twice in the head at point-blank range. The gun was so close to her skin that she had been burned on her forehead. The next shot entered through her right eye and exited just below her left ear. She was found on her back, on her bed, in her room that she shared with her nine-month-old son. Philip Devine was shot twice. The shot that killed him instantly entered his skull above his right eyebrow and it remained lodged in his brain. He was found slouched in front of the couch in the living room. Brandon was found at the foot of Lisa's waterbed. He had been shot and stabbed. The gun that was used in the murders was placed under his chin. When the trigger was pulled, the bullet lodged in the base of his brain, just under his right eye. A second bullet exited his skull from a starting point of his right eye. The pathologist was unable to determine which bullet was fired first, but regardless, they both would have caused death. 
he had been stabbed several times near his liver, which would have also led to his death. Investigators arrived at the scene and quickly figured out that this was not a burglary. Brandon was recognizable to authorities. Meanwhile, John and Tom drove out of their way to enter Falls City, using a different route so they would not be suspected in the murders. They made stops along the way to discard the gloves and weapons in a river. The weapons were quickly recovered by authorities, since the river was frozen. John and Tom barely attempted to cover their tracks. It would not have mattered as they were prime suspects from the beginning of the investigation, due to their previous assault on Brandon. Their only attempt to cover up what they had done was to ask John's girlfriend Rhonda and Tom's wife Candy to say that they had arrived home by 1 a.m. At around 5 o'clock p.m. on December 31, 1993, police arrived at Tom's house where the pair was arrested. John was charged with murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault. Tom was charged with murder, kidnapping, and aiding and abetting the assault of Brandon. Both men were held without bond until their trials. Tom was tried in February of 1995. A jury convicted him of first-degree murder in the death of Brandon Tina and convicted him of the lesser charge of second-degree murder in the deaths of Lisa and Philip. He still faced the death penalty. On May 15, 1995, John's trial began, but a surprise came when Tom agreed to testify against John in order to avoid the death penalty. Much of what we know about the murders comes from Tom Nissen's testimony. On May 25, 1995, John was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder, three counts of using a deadly weapon, and one count of burglary. He was sentenced to die. Joanne Brandon sued Sheriff Locks and Richardson County for Brandon's wrongful death and for failing to protect him. She stated that Sheriff Locks was negligent and mishandled the case that ultimately caused Brandon's murder. If he had made an arrest, Brandon's death may have been prevented. Sheriff Locks said he was wanting to avoid making a rush to judgment. The lower court dismissed the suit, but the Nebraska Supreme Court reinstated the suit because they discovered that Sheriff Locks had informed John and Tom of the rape claim made against them. The justices followed up their decision by stating, if the allegations were true, Locks laid an essential link in the chain that led to the victim's death. The lower court awarded 15% of the requested amount, which was about 17000 The Nebraska Supreme Court interjected again and told them to pay out the original amount. Both John and Tom have appealed their cases. All have been denied and exhausted. John was scheduled for execution in 2000. However, he was issued a stay. He is still on death row in Nebraska. Brandon was laid to rest in Lincoln Memorial Park. He was just 21 years old at the time of his death. Brandon's death caused transgender activists and supporters to attend the hearings. Many of them shared their stories on how they had been assaulted or raped because of how they identify. Violence against transgender men and women is still a common problem. As of this recording, in October of 2017, 21 transgender victims have lost their life in 2017. The rate of transgender murder hasn't decreased in the past few years, and 2017 looks to continue the trend of uptick in murders. If you or someone you know needs an advocate for transgender issues, please contact the Trans Lifeline at 
565-8860 or www.translifeline.org. Links will be in the show notes. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a positive review in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app of choice. It really does help us out and brings more listeners to the show. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com forward slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram TCFC underscore podcast, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. Case suggestions can be sent to us at tcfcpod at gmail.com. The official composer for the show is We Talk of Dreams, who created custom music just for us. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or wetalkofdreams.com. Research assistance and content editing for the show is provided by Brittany Martinez.